Good morning. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 10. At our Tina's old house that she owned in the cities before we got married, uh, she had uh, a clump of these bamboo plants that were growing up beside of her garage. And they were pretty and all, but when you cut them down, they spread. Uh, something about them that uh, when, you, when you hacked them off at the base, it put the plant in distress, and it would actually spread out through the roots and pop up in other places. Uh, it was something of a plant like the hydra of Greek mythology. And the more you chopped it, the more it spread. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, a few things, but one of the key things here will be uh, an examination of the sin of pride. And in many ways, the sin of pride is like that bamboo plant. It is pervasive, and we simply can't conquer it by brute force. In fact, it may even spread the more we fight it if we fight it in the wrong way. This morning, Jesus is going to help show us how to kill pride in our life. So let's read about that together. We'll be picking up in Mark chapter 10 and verse 35, and we'll read down through verse 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the, drink, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we come before you this morning as your people who are in desperate need of you. Lord, we have weeds in our lives that we can't pluck out on our own, Lord. But you, by your Holy Spirit, can help us. So I pray as we look into your word that you would help us. That you would shine the spotlight of your word into our hearts, into our lives. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to free ourselves from sin by your might, not by ours. I pray that you be glorified in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
As we look through this passage, I think the call for us here is to trust and follow Jesus, our servant king. He is a king. He is a servant king. And we're called here to trust and follow him. We'll see first the pride of the two. And we'll see the pride of the ten. Then we'll see the humility of Christ's servants and the humility of Christ the servant. The pride of the two, the pride of the ten, the humility of Christ's servants, and the humility of Christ the servant. So let's look here first at the pride of the two. Our passage opens up with a request from two of the twelve apostles here. James and John are two of the three who are considered the innermost circle of disciples. We've seen this already. It's Peter and James and John who get to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration and see Jesus glorified right there in front of them. So they are already in the inner circle. uh, And they're here named the sons of Zebedee. They're two brothers. uh, And both of them come to Jesus with a request. Now apparently, uh, you know, there's only two seats, one on the left hand, one on the right hand. So Peter gets cut out of the deal, I guess. Uh, first they ask Jesus to grant them a request no matter what it is. Uh, they, they seem to be asking Jesus to write a blank check for them that they can go in and fill in later once they've gotten him to sign it. Uh, Jesus doesn't take the bait. Instead, he just simply asks them, what is it that you want? John and James take their chance here and they shoot for the stars. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. It seems that out of everything that Jesus said in the passage we looked at last week and in the months before that, it seems like the main thing that they've heard is that Jesus is going to be receiving glory and a throne. Although Jesus has told them that he is going to be torturously killed, John and James are calculating how to get a leg up on the other apostles. They want positions of greatness. They want to be put at uh, the right hand of Jesus and at the left hand. If you're at the right hand of somebody who's in power, uh, that means that you also are there in power. Uh, To be at the right hand of Jesus in his glory would be to receive glory alongside with him. And to be on the left hand would be similar. These brothers have their eyes on the prize. They want to secure a position uh, at the top of greatness under Jesus. Now, how are the other ten going to take it? How are they going to handle this request? Well, for them, I guess it's not their problem. Uh, They seem to be caring, first and foremost, that they secure this position of glory. Uh, They take their gambit bid to get their top seats of glory here. Uh, And to add to all of this, uh, it's not mentioned here in Mark's gospel, but in Matthew chapter 20, in the parallel of this passage, uh, John and James actually get their mom to come and make this request. So that's interesting uh, in its own right. Uh, There she's requesting along with them. They got to call mom to get the job done. I do wonder, this is complete speculation at this point, but I just have to wonder what kind of a person the son or the mom of John and James is. What kind of a woman was she? You know, they were called the sons of thunder. Maybe they came by it honestly. I don't know. Uh, but, but there she is, a complete speculation. Who knows? Uh, but <clears throat> they've laid their request on the table. And uh, how is Jesus going to respond? They're wondering. Uh, Jesus tells them that they don't know what they're asking for. 
Then he turns and he asks them some questions. We see in verse 38, he says, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus is asking these two if they are prepared to suffer like he is going to suffer. Are they ready for that? Are they able to do that? Jesus uh, speaks of his own death as a baptism in Luke chapter 12, verse 50. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. In the garden, so that's the baptism that's discussed there. Uh, In the garden, as Jesus is praying before he's arrested, he pleads with his father that if there's any way possible, that he would let that cup pass from him. But as it turns out, there is no other way. And so Jesus will drink the cup that the Father gives him on the cross. And Jesus says, are you able to do this? Now, Jesus has been talking about the realities of his death and his resurrection just in the immediate passage that comes before this. And here are these two disciples now vying for greatness. Jesus asked them, If they are able to descend into the crucible with him, are they able to take the heat alongside of him? And as shocking as the whole conversation has been thus far, they respond, we are able. I think that their response proves Jesus' first statement, that they don't know what they're asking for. I think they are struggling, and I'm not trying to just beat them up here. I think they're struggling to understand what's happening here. I don't think they quite get the whole picture yet. Uh, And Jesus doesn't blow up on them. Uh, He doesn't lose his cool or berate them. Once again, he instructs them and he teaches them with such great patience. And the truth is, Jesus tells them that they will drink of the cup. And they will be baptized with his baptism. They will know the suffering of Christ, not to the extent that he suffers, but they will suffer for the sake of Christ and his gospel. We will see in our study in the book of Acts, as we get to chapter 12, that this James, the brother of John, he is going to be beheaded, or pardon me, he's going to be executed. I don't know by what means exactly. He will be put to the sword by Herod. He will be the first apostle martyred. Stephen's the first uh, leader in the church that's martyred, but James will be the first apostle martyred. He's going to pay for being faithful to Jesus with his life. John, later... He's going to be exiled to Patmos to live out his, the rest of his days. Uh, both of these brothers are going to suffer so much for Christ. But whether they're given the seat on Jesus' right hand and left, that is not for Jesus to grant here. Those seats are prepared for particular people by the Father's determination. Certainly whoever occupies those seats will have suffered for Christ in the deepest of ways. And whether John and James... One of them or both of them will be in those seats. Uh, It's not answered here in Jesus' response. Perhaps they will, perhaps they won't. But it isn't a first come, first serve kind of a thing. Uh, It's not theirs just for the asking. Again, it's ironic that uh, they've made their request at this moment. Jesus has just foretold his death and resurrection, and they are thinking in terms of their own glory. Uh, Unless we simply condemn their pride at this moment, Uh, We need uh, to check ourselves and remember that every single one of us is prone to pride. 
Every single one of us is liable to this kind of self-focus. Every single human being is born with an innate self-focus. We all care deeply about ourselves. You know, even if somebody strongly dislikes themselves, they still tend to think about themselves quite a bit. Uh, I recently read uh, this last week about a new term I'd never heard before. Uh, and it's, it's out there now. Maybe you've heard of it. Have you heard of the, the phrase or the word sologamy? It's not a food. Uh, it's not something you put on your sandwich. Uh, sologamy, uh, it's maybe some of the counterparts to it would be a word you might probably know better. Monogamy uh, or polygamy. You know, in, in monogamy, you're, you've got a person who's married to one spouse. In polygamy, you've got a person who's married to multiple spouses. Uh, sologamy is a recent trend in which people have begun to marry themselves. Uh, people, I kid you not, people vow to love themselves. They vow to think about themselves above anyone else. They vow and commit themselves to care for themselves. It's a thing. Uh, in fact, people will have ceremonies to commemorate it. Uh, and they'll have cake. Uh, they'll invite guests. In fact, this particular article I was reading, it was actually people who were getting together in groups. So many people were marrying themselves on the same day. Uh, I guess people don't like to marry themselves alone. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. Uh, sologamy has actually been around for a long time. Uh, plenty of people have a spouse and are still practicing sologamy. Uh, the truth is that the sin of pride turns everybody into a closet sologamist. Uh, we are all tempted to be devoted to ourselves above anybody else. The kind of glory seeking that we see in John and in James in our passage is just a natural temptation to every single human being. We all have a bent to seek our own glory, our own interests, and our own satisfactions. Only Jesus Christ can save us from ourselves and from our commitment to ourselves. And we're going to see that in a moment. Um, but before we see Christ's cure, uh, we have to see that the problem gets a bit worse yet in our passage. We've seen the pride of the two, now let's look at the pride of the ten. Uh, a concern for self-glory has a way of being contagious. John and James have slipped in with a desire for greatness, uh, and they have not gotten what they've hoped for. But when the other ten apostles hear about it, they start getting angry, the text tells us. They are indignant at James and John. You know, they're like, who do these jokers think they are? And I was tempting to view this dispute, again, as a unique problem for the apostles, something that we would never encounter, but the dynamic runs right through our own hearts. A different James, not this James in our passage, but the author of the book of James in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. A couple verses later, verse 6, James says, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Pride in James and John has fueled pride in the other disciples, and it has led to a fight. And there are several warnings throughout the New Testament about the dangers of pride and rivalry. And we see tangible examples here in the ministry of Jesus' first disciples. Nobody is immune to pride. If pride and rivalry can take hold of Jesus' first disciples, they can certainly catch us too. But what do we do with it? What do we do with our pride? Uh, pride is such a slippery sin. You know, you can grow prideful in your fight against your own pride. And, and at what point exactly is your fight with pride done? You know, when can you say, all right, I'm humble now? Uh, the fight against pride is a lifelong battle, but that doesn't mean it's a stalemate. We can make progress in this war. In our passage, Jesus leads us in our fight against pride in it, by his teaching and example. He's going to show us what it looks like to be humble. So let's turn. Uh, now we'll see the humility that Christ calls for his servants before we look at the humility of Christ the servant. So let's see the, the humility of Christ's servants. Uh, Jesus calls the twelve to himself in verse 42. Uh, after this fight has begun, he, he steps in. Jesus sees this as an opportunity to teach his disciples about true greatness. What is true greatness? He begins by putting before them something that they know very well. He tells them about the way the world operates. Verse 42, Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. You know, those who are in power use their power to make it clear that they are in power uh, and to stay in power if at all possible. That is just how the world works. History is littered with rulers who use their power for their own gain. And they use it in such a way that others won't mess with them. Jesus here reminds the disciples something that they know quite well. And then he says, but it shouldn't be that way among you. But it shall not be so among you, he says. Just because it's natural for those in power to lord their power and authority over others, that doesn't mean it's Christian. It does, doesn't mean that that's the way that Christ has called us to lead. Jesus flips greatness on its head. Rather, I think he flips a popular understanding of greatness on its head as he's telling us about what true greatness is. True greatness comes through service. To be more specific, true greatness comes through serving others. Verse 43 and following here says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That's true greatness. Do you want to be first over everybody else? Be slave to everybody. Do you want to be great? Be a servant. That clarifies what true greatness is. If they are going to pursue greatness, that's the kind of greatness to pursue. That is the kind of greatness that glorifies God. That's not the kind of greatness that glorifies man. This kind of greatness builds other people up rather than tearing them down. 
True greatness is an others-focused kind of greatness rather than a self-focused kind of greatness. The question for us is, are we willing to seek this kind of greatness? Are we willing to seek greatness according to how Jesus defines it? Do we have the faith to apply ourselves to seeking greatness according to Jesus' definition? It is natural to seek an earthly kind of greatness, but seeking true greatness can only happen by the power of God. We should see ourselves as servants to each other. Jesus doesn't know just give them a command here uh, and leave them to figure it out and to, to sort it out on their own. Jesus provides both an example and the power to pursue this life of service. Let's look last now at the humility of Christ the servant. You know, the first time that Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die and rise again was in Mark chapter 8, verse 32. And immediately, Peter turns and rebukes Jesus for saying that he, the Christ, would die. Jesus rebukes Peter. The second time Jesus tells them that he's going to die, uh, immediately after that, this is Mark chapter 9, immediately after that, the twelve begin to argue together who's going to be the greatest. Jesus has just told them he's going to die, and they're bickering about who will be the greatest. You know, people say third time's a charm, uh, but not in this case. Uh, here we see that Jesus has uh, told them that he is going to die and rise again, and they're right back at it again. You know, the second time that Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die, uh, and they start arguing about who's the greatest, Jesus puts a child in their midst. And he says, if you want to be great, you need to serve one another. Similar to what we see here. Uh, he says that you need to receive one such child uh, in my name here. Uh, this time, when Jesus hears them arguing, instead of putting a child before them, he puts himself before them. Verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now we considered last week uh, the title, the Son of Man, and what that means. You saw that majestic messianic figure from Daniel 7. We considered the greatness of Jesus, the Son of Man, and the strange reality that one so great would be humbled to such a humiliating death. Here again, Jesus reminds his disciples of his identity as the Son of Man and the mission of this Son of Man. Not even one so great as this great figure from Daniel 7, not even one so great as him, came to be served by others. Rather, he came to serve. That's our examples. That's our example there. The greatest of all came to serve. He took on the form of a servant, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, the work of this servant is so clearly seen in what he says next. He says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This servant will pay the price of the release for many, Jesus says. He will make this payment in their place. Brothers and sisters, this is how Jesus has served us. This is how we have been served by the Son of Man. He has come to pay the price that it was required uh, for us to be freed. Uh, he didn't pay a price to Satan. He didn't buy us from Satan. Instead, 
It's the price of what it costs to satisfy the justice of God in our place. Apart from the death of Jesus, on our behalf, we are all consigned to condemnation. We are all under the verdict of condemned because of our sin. But through the death of Christ in our place, we are freed from that condemnation. We are freed from the bondage to our sin. He has become the substitute in our place, and he bears our sin on the cross. And this is the kind of service that nobody else was fit to do. This is a service that no one else could render. Jesus, because he was man, could make that payment in our place. Because he was sinless, he could actually die in our place uh, and, and have something to show for it. Because he was God, his payment was of sufficient value. It was of infinite value. This is a service that only the Son of Man could render. And in his humility and love, it is the service that he has rendered for us. In Christ, we find not only the example of supreme humility, we also find forgiveness for our sins, including the sin of pride. Jesus has saved us from our pride by his self-sacrificial death in our place. This is how Jesus helps us fight pride. Remember, pride is like that plant that multiplies if you fight it in the wrong way. If we attack our pride apart from Christ, it's only going to spread. It may even become more pervasive and more insidious as we fight it. But in Christ, uh, we have the perfect weed killer for the poison of pride in our own lives, and that's how you poison at the root. You see Christ, uh, you see that he has dealt with your sin. Uh, we are not condemned before God for our pride. We've been forgiven. Then, through Christ, we see the example of what true humility looks like. And that's what we pursue. We are pursuing Christ. We're not simply pursuing humility for humility's sake. We are pursuing the humble one. We are pursuing Christ. The whole uh, Christian life, as we are following him, we are seeking this one who is the very definition of humility. And that's how we grow in it. If you simply are staring at pride and humility, trying to be more humble, trying to be less prideful, and you're not seeing Christ you're really probably shooting at the wrong target. You've got to be seeking the humble Christ. He is our king who is a servant. He is the one who has freed us from the condemnation of our pride. He is the one who welcomes us into the family of God where we can be children before him. We enjoy the grace that he has given and we fight ruthlessly the sin in our lives as we follow his example. This next week, we're going to finish up Mark chapter 10. Uh, then, uh, we're going to, after Thanksgiving, we're going to move into the Christmas season, and we're going to continue with a study of humility uh, in the weeks leading up to Christmas. I'm going to go to prayer now. Uh, the children, when I'm done praying, the children will be dismissed to go uh, for the Christmas program. Let's pray.